Welcome to Four Generations to Come, a podcast by Generations Church. We are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. Whether you are re-listening to a Sunday teaching or listening to the playback because you weren't able to join us live during our Sunday gatherings, we're excited to connect with you. We hope to see you this summer at our midweek meetups across the Northwest. You can also check out the playlist for the Songs We Sing series on our website or social media. Behind every song is a story, a personal story or the story of Scripture. What we sing shapes us. Whether it's the kid's song in your head that you can't seem to shake, or the tune to which you cling when difficulty arises. The songs we sing during our gatherings remind us of who God is and what he has done, as well as who we are in him. In our summer series, we take a look at the meaning behind the music to help us live our liturgy so that our faith is an everyday faith. The songs we sing shape us. May they help us become more like Jesus. Enjoy today's continuing our series through the summer of our songs that we sing. So we're kind of going through the different songs that we sing here during our worship time, and we're just diving a little bit deeper into them. So songs typically are written based on a personal experience or something that really kind of felt that made that author of the song feel compelled to share that. So we want to know why. Why did they share those things, and why was that something that was important to them? So we're going to dive into that a little bit more. Um, So the scripture for today is Genesis 50, and it's 19 through 21 going to get that up on the screen and then I'll read it. It says, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them.
cool. I get to talk with my hands less today. That's what that means. One hand, big, big, big waves. See, one and one, one elbows. You know, it, it's it's funny. Yeah, yeah, no, all all that stuff. See, unforeseen circumstances. You just never know when the mic's not gonna work exactly right, and so you just got to adapt. Go with the flow, unless you're trying to stop the flow by throwing rocks into the dam, into the river to build a dam, and then that doesn't work because finite game rules do not work. So back to the story about the little brother. See, this little brother had the audacity to think that even the mother and father of the family would look to him for protection and guidance. Now, he was the dad's favorite, so there were a few moments where he could do no wrong. It was so frustrating because their father had told them stories and raised them so that this whole family would all be great. Everyone knew how it worked. The older you were, when dad passed, you would inherit a little more. But this younger brother was spoiled. Favoritism, though, ran in the family. The older brother had heard what had happened between their dad and his brother. So when they needed a way to get this younger brat out of the picture, there was no way he was going to take what was theirs. And so this family, this, this group of brothers, made a plan to get rid of this younger brother. It was cruel. But they had to make sure their family stayed great and fulfilled their divine purpose. These brothers, even the younger brother, were all playing the finite game. They had one single objective. To win. To be successful. To inherit what was theirs. And they had definite rules about what it meant to be successful in their world. And at the end of really... The first season of life, they thought they won. And they were willing to make sure that they won and kept winning by any means necessary. But there was an infinite game or plan at play. In the final movement of Genesis, we find the story of Jacob's sons. Jacob loved his son more than his other sons, named Joseph. And he gives him special treatment, as well as a colorful coat. The ten older sons come to hate Joseph, and they kidnap him and plan to kill him. But at last minute, they decide to sell him into slavery in Egypt instead. Talk about dysfunctional family. Through all of this, God is with Joseph. And he orchestrates not only his release from prison, but also his rise to power. Pharaoh discovers Joseph and elevates him to second in command over all of Egypt. Then during a famine, Joseph saves all of Egypt and his brothers who even betrayed him. And once again, the sin of Abraham's family is met with God's faithfulness. God subverts even the evil of the brothers into an occasion to save lives. In fact, this is what Joseph says near the end of the book, which would have been a scroll which Charity read. You plan for all this evil, 
but God planned it for good to save many lives. It was about Joseph, but it wasn't about Joseph. These words are strategically placed at the end of Genesis. They summarize not only the story of Joseph and his brothers, but also the entire Genesis narrative. From Genesis 3 onwards, humans continue to act selfishly and do what is good in their own eyes. But God is not going to leave the world to its own devices. God remains faithful and determined to bless people through his presence and grace, despite their failure. When we want to see victory, we must be careful to define victory and what game. What game are you playing? What is the, the limit of rules? Are you playing the infinite game or are you playing some version of a finite game where you can make sure you can even manipulate the rules to be successful, to get ahead and win, maybe at the expense of others? See, the victory that we often seek in this life is personal happiness expressed in power, comfort, control, or even approval of others. The enemy, the one who must be defeated, is the person or group or system who stands in my way from achieving my happiness. And I will defeat them at all costs. I will get rid of them. I will eliminate them. And that may be, not be, that may be another person. It may be some sort of obstacle or belief. We all have something in our lives that we think, if we only had this, then I win. And sometimes, the picture in our minds, the object of our desire, whether it be a person, a status, a compliment from someone else, if I could only get that, then I'll be good. And what happens is in our pursuit of that, of winning that game, of achieving that objective, may we sacrifice convictions. May we let the morals slide. Maybe it becomes a little more gray, or even we say it'll only hurt them a little bit. Because I need this. I know generalizations are generally true. Not absolutely true. But generally the evil pain and suffering we see in the world, mostly in the West at times, is propagated by humans and humans and more humans playing their own finite games simultaneously for their own happiness. Like trying to play soccer, football on the same field and throwing a golf driving range on the other end at one end zone and playing all those at the same time, trying to keep score, trying to win, someone is inevitably going to get hurt. And you may win the game. One of the football teams may come at the end of the game when the time clock is up and saying, I won. 
We knocked out a couple soccer players. We caught that touchdown pass and busted a driver, but who cares? Like, at the end of the day, we won. And what happens is so many times in our day-to-day life, when we interact with other people, we find ourselves competing in finite games that we're not even sure maybe of the rules, of what they're playing. We know what finite game we're playing, and we will knock out anyone who gets in our way. So you may win the game. You may feel a sense of accomplishment. You may even get the object that you desire. You may hear the words that you so desperately long to hear. You may avoid the hurt that you're trying to avoid. But there will be people who are seriously hurt in the process of that achievement. See, whether you're an atheist in the room or watching online or a self-perceptive, professed Christian, you must answer, where does evil come from? And is there any, will there be any solution or justice to pain and suffering that we experience in this life? See, the burden of proof does not just lie for the follower of Jesus, but all people must answer, not just with their lips through speech, but with their worldview, how they live. Where does evil come from? Does suffering have meaning? And if I suffer, if there is someone who I view as pure or innocent, and they experience something painful, will there be justice for them? Every person has to answer those questions and operate and live in such a way that's consistent with that answer. Or at least that's the hope. The story of Joseph is the first of many that speak to the difference between one's envisioned plans and how God intended us to operate within the world. This actually limiting evil and bringing good. See, when we reframe victory from personal happiness to ongoing transformation, we begin to live by a different set of principles which have an effect on our lives and the lives of those around us and ultimately generations to come. See, God holds all of this in view. As he sees you, as he sees the circumstances of your life, as he knows your upbringing and background and experience, he knows what even your hearts and your, your aspirations are, the desires. He knows that he loves you, and it's about you. But it's not about you. Here's what I mean. God operates from purpose, presence, and promise, consistent with his character. And he wants you to experience the totality of his loving and gracious character And so he operates within a complex world to bring that to reality, to help all people see and experience his goodness. The challenge is, will we be obstacles? Will we be hitting golf balls from an end zone while a football game is ongoing? Or will we join in with God's divine purposes and operate by those same principles 
by those same purposes, experiencing his presence in our daily life so that that is pushed forward rather than our own finite game agendas. The principles that God operates from is that suffering has a purpose, but God does not delight in it, nor is the cause of it. That God will be with us in the midst of suffering. It's both relational, but it's also revealing of what actually the longings of our heart really are. But that God will also fulfill his promises. Suffering has a purpose. I know sometimes we we whip out that cliche because we don't know what else to say. But when we begin to operate from God's divine principles, it will become less of a cliche and it will produce more tangible actions that reiterate who God is and his loving character and priorities. But suffering has a purpose. This understanding not only resonates with Christians, but has been recognized by many secular thinkers as well. In his book, David and Goliath, Malcolm Gladwell documents the lives of many successful leaders and entrepreneurs who succeed not in spite of challenges and suffering in life, but because of them. He calls this phenomenon the advantage of disadvantage. Gladwell cites a study from City University of London that notes that a third of highly successful entrepreneurs are dyslexic. Richard Branson, Charles Schwab, and Paul, uh, oh man, I'm not going to be able to say this last name. I practiced it earlier. <laughs> See, we, we, weakness and strength and weakness. I don't know. I'm not going to say it, but Smith, now, nah. Orphalia or something like that. But anyways, that's not the point of getting the name right. The point is the advantage of disadvantage. Sharon Thompson Schill recalls speaking at a prominent university donors meeting filled with successful business people. And when she asked how many of them had been diagnosed with a learning disorder, half of the hands went up. Gladwell documents all of this, and his insight on this is profound. There are two possible interpretations for this fact. One is that this remarkable group of people triumphed in spite of their disability, that they are so smart and creative that nothing, not even a lifetime of struggling with reading, could stop them. But the second, I think more intriguing possibility, he notes, is that they succeeded in part because of their disorder, that they learned something in their struggle that proved to be an enormous advantage. One author using Gladwell's observation says, consider the example of Joseph in the book of Genesis. It is because he was enslaved that he went to Egypt, became powerful in government, and later when his brothers came to Egypt to seek food, he was able to take care of them and the rest of his family. Had he not been there, they may have died. At that point, Joseph delivered one of the Bible's most important truths about suffering. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
Joseph was careful not to assume, as we so often do in modern times, that when it comes to suffering, the meaning behind it will be obvious. Often the meaning or purpose of suffering or evil is more akin to a microscopic organism than something blatant and obvious. So small that it's not even visible to the naked eye, but still very real. See, the real opponent in that story is not the brothers, but the lies they believed in their heart. The real opponent, even for Joseph, was his own character flaw or arrogance that took until the very end to work out. It was until the very last quotes in Genesis 50 when he decides, I'm going to stop playing the game of getting revenge and I'm going to break down because God broke through and he offered forgiveness to a brother where he had been arrogant, he had harbored a level of resentment, and it took years and years to work out. Because it was about them, but it wasn't about them. See, the reason we struggle with this concept of purposeful suffering today in the Western world is because when we see the point and purpose of life, at, we see the purpose and point of life as happiness. I just want people to be happy, so you do you. Go get what's yours. Just be happy. But what happens is when happiness is the ultimate, you will overlap games, and someone will always get hurt. In that paradigm as well, suffering is always a pointless invasion. It's a nuisance, like a fly that just won't leave. By contrast, social theorist Max Scheler argues that an essential part of the teaching and directives of the great religious and philosophical thinkers of the world over and over and over again has been that there is meaning to pain and suffering. See, throughout history, virtually every society has taught, to, has taught and tried to teach people how to deal with pain and suffering. But what happens in our current moment, we've largely neglected this task. We distract ourselves. We scroll a little bit more. We, we just play a lot of different finite games to cheapen some sense of victory so that we never have to deal with what's actually going on in our heart and in our soul. Because if I can just be a little more, more distracted, if I can just get a, become just a little more happy, and again, God's not against your happiness, but in pursuit of your happiness, your happiness being your ultimate, you will always hurt people along the way, and it will always, you will always settle for something less, a cheaper victory than what God has to offer. Because your true happiness doesn't come on the way to achieving your dream or the picture, but it comes from knowing and receiving a loving relationship with God. And out of that, then you can enjoy the other victories that you experience because those other victories, those other things point back to the only thing that will last. So we must recondition and repattern our minds to not settle for cheap victories. We must repattern and recondition our minds to deal with the real pain and real suffering that maybe even allows us to sit with some unanswered questions in the mystery and allowing the presence of God that was there with Joseph 
through all the ups and downs to simply be present there with us. See, oftentimes we settle for phrases like, what goes around comes around. But such words don't make sense in the face of tragedy. Karmic theology, when truly understood, blames the victims for their fate. And sometimes, suffering comes out of nowhere, unexpected, because the finite games that others have played have perpetuated some sin and polluted and brokenness that wreak havoc on our lives. But Christianity, in the midst of all that, teaches that contra-fatalism, suffering is overwhelming at times. Contra-Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra-karma, suffering is often unfair. And even contra-secularism, which influences us the most, suffering is meaningful. At the end of the day, God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. The family would continue for the sake of others. That was the promise. That God would work through a family so that others would receive blessing and see his presence at work in the world. So in the midst of famine, in the midst of family strife, in the midst of up and downs, the family still continued. I find it interesting that Malcolm Gladwell uses the title David and Goliath for that book that I mentioned a moment ago. And then he makes this point because in 1 Samuel 17, an unassuming shepherd faces a giant in battle and makes the statement, the battle belongs to the Lord. David can have confidence, not that, they, that he was going to be successful, but he knew the God who would be, who fulfills his promise, who moves the promise forward. Even in the midst of loss that could have come, because of who God is, the promise would be fulfilled. We, as followers of Jesus, in this moment, we have to cling to God's promise. But sometimes we forget what God has promised us. We think we're promised health. We think we're promised wealth. We think we're promised the perfect job. We think we're promised that our work is going to be meaningful, that our kids will grow up right, that we'll have the most perfect marriages. We, 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 we try to chase after a game of things that we think we're promised. And we got to return to the promise of Scripture of what we are actually promised. What God has promised through His Word is to be present with His people. And this is what Jeremiah Chapter 31, verses 31 through 34 says. Jeremiah is recounting through a difficult time of laments and torment of like, where are you God type moments. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says these words. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. A covenant they broke even though I married them, the Lord's declaration. And said, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them. 
and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. The church has been grafted into the family that is Israel because of Jesus. We can sing what we're going to sing, that we're going to see a victory because of Jesus. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, if you remember maybe back a few weeks ago, in 1 Corinthians 15 it says, Thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can have victory because of Jesus. That we can know God and be known by Him. That He can speak to us through the presence of His Holy Spirit when we're baptized into Him. And we can learn to live in His ways. Not because you need me up here teaching and, and, and being an intercessory or an intermediary. But you can know Him personally and live out His will and His ways through studying His Word. Through responding to the Spirit. And through a community of people learning to live out His will and His ways together. So what God has promised to us in Jesus the fulfillment of that prophecy. The bringing of that new covenant, that new relation to that agreement is his presence. But also there will be justice for evil. That sin and death and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire after their judgment. That there will be a day when there's no more, there, there's no more fear, there's no more sin, there's no more brokenness and death. But he's also promised us forgiveness for our wrongdoing. Also known as playing the finite games. I talk about those finite games because I want to identify them, not because I want to shame you for them or guilt you. We've all played them. We've all settled for things that are less, and he offers us forgiveness for them. And so the victory we see through the presence of the Jesus and, and the coming of the Spirit and the hope of his return and making all things new, enjoying his presence forever, seeing true justice for evil, and experiencing forgiveness for our wrongdoing and the purification of all that is wrong. There can be hope for those who won't see healing in this life. There can be hope for those who won't see a marriage restored. There can be hope for those who have prayed and prayed and prayed, and there seems to be no answer. There can also be joy for those who do see breakthrough, who see temporary victories, who see healing, who see that maybe you get the perfect job and you can celebrate with them because we know that's a good gift from God. It also allows us to grow in faith for the God who did and can do again. We can experience love for those who don't think they need it, or never quite break through. In the film version of The Two Towers, Samwise Gamgee tries to convince Frodo to keep pressing on to the Mount Doom in spite of all the pain and suffering they have been through and seen. He says, It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? 
How could the world go back to that way when it was so much that bad that had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. It's a shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it shines out the clear. This is the great hope that Christianity holds out to all of us. This is the hope that we have through faith in Jesus. That when there's dark days, when there's moments of loneliness, when it doesn't seem like you can do enough to just get ahead, when it seems like there's just one more thing that goes wrong, that there's hope that evil and suffering will get its due. That victory has been accomplished through Jesus on the cross. And we will be able to experience that victory fully and completely when he returns. And we hold out hope that we may not be the only ones who experience that. We push forward. We live this life with that in mind. Because your neighbor needs that. Because if they're living by any other set of rules or playing their own set of finite games, there's futility and frustration. There's fear. And they wonder, where will I go? Maybe I'll just try this. And they need to see a people whose reasoning is because of Jesus, there is purpose in my suffering, in my pain. It's okay to weep and lament and grieve, but I'm not alone. God is with me. And even though I endure, I know I endure for a little while. Because what is a few moments in the span of eternity? See, along the way, you go through something so that others can see your dependence on God. So that maybe you provide the way for people to see the cross of Christ lived out in you. See, in the end, it's all about you experiencing the love of Jesus. But it's not about you. It's about the promise of God being fulfilled within the world. The promise of His love to go to you and go through you. To go out to those around you. So in the end, in all, it's, about, it's all about you. It's all about you because of Jesus. But it's not all about you. It's all about Jesus providing the way through so that we can get up the next morning so that we can love when the gas tank's on empty, that we can pray another prayer. Maybe we can give it one more go, and when the energy is spent, that he's worked in the lives of others, to say, we got your back. I'm going to put my arm around your shoulder, and we're going to do this together. I'll pay for your gas so that you can sleep on my couch. We can give it another go. I'm sorry that job didn't work out. I'm sorry that you're struggling to find meaning and purpose right now. But your life has value. You matter to me and to God because of Jesus. So we sing, see a victory. We hang to that eternal truth. 
We know the battle belongs to the Lord, and He does that, and we see that through each other. We see it in the stories we tell, in the songs that we sing. May we experience victory because of Jesus. Let me just pray, and Charity's going to come up and guide us in how to respond, and the band will come forward as well, and we'll sing and respond together. God, right now, I... I don't know where we're at in this room, what people are struggling with if they're at the end of the rope or just trying to process of what's going on or what to do. God, I pray right now that the things they want to see emerge out of their relationship with you, your presence, your goodness, that they play the eternal game with you. God, that we we stop playing the finite games. God, we stop playing the games that we think will just get us ahead, but we allow ourselves to be caught up in who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for your love and for your grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Four Generations to Come, a podcast by Generations Church. If you want to know what's happening around the church, please visit mygenerations.com. Church. There you'll see opportunities to connect through activity groups and events, as well as gatherings you can attend. We also want to hear your stories, how God is working in your life. So jump on over there to our website and share your story. Share how God is at work in your life. And if you're going through a difficult time or you even have some praises, we would love to be able to pray with you and for you. There'll be a button there to do that as well. Have an incredible day.